We've spent the first few days of this retreat looking at getting here, settling in here, and really being here. Sharda talked a lot about mindful embodiment, really being uh, connected to ourselves in a very full way. And we want to, of course, continue to encourage that, even, even in the talk now. You know, especially given that we're doing interactive practice together, this is also part of the interactive practice, right? You know, you're, I'm speaking, you're listening, but we're both working with being present as I'm speaking, as you're listening. And then yesterday, Martin talked about being with, about opening to our experience and the difficulty that we have, the ideas we have or the beliefs we have about what we can open to, what we can't open to. And all of this is in the service of setting a foundation or the groundwork for, really, for awakening, for being here in a way that is beyond the conventional or beyond what we usually understand this, what does it mean to be here, or what it means to be a human being. Or, or another way we could say it is the level of maturity that human beings uh, um, can, can come to that there's a conventional idea about maturity is, you know, like you grow up and you, you know, be responsible and you pay the bills and that's, and that's all good. But there may be a, another level, another octave of maturity that is possible for us as human beings. And that maturity or that freedom that is talked about in Buddhism is actually talked about a number of different ways. It's not just one way. There's not just one simple, oh, this is it. And actually you'll talk to different people or or different teachers and you'll hear different facets of this jewel of the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. You'll hear different facets of awakening being described at different times. And I'm going to speak a little bit to two ways it's talked about. And one of them is summed up in a Zen story the basic story is Zen, ma- Zen student goes to the Zen master and says, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And you could imagine, if you were the teacher, what, what would you say, right? Liberation, freedom, becoming a bodhisattva, enlightenment. And those are all valid answers, good answers. But the teacher here said, an appropriate response. What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? An appropriate response. And so part of what is happening here is we're cultivating the capacity for an appropriate response. Mindfulness is one of the main uh, tools the main skills that we develop so that we can respond to reality. We can respond fresh. We can respond 
with uh, uh, all our capacities in the lived moment. Not, there's not a, an appropriate response handbook where you go and look up what are you supposed to do. More there's learning how to trust ourselves to respond appropriately because we're actually here and we can trust ourselves to be here. And then with that kind of presence that's cultivated, there are all these capacities that we have for intelligence, for creativity, for compassion, for love, for a certain kind of um, power or strength to function and function well. And often when you look at the statues, right, they really, they're beautiful statues, aren't they? This is the Buddha, if you didn't know. This is his mother at a young age, uh, Prajnaparamita, considered the mother of all Buddhas. And really great images. But they're a little limited. They function as an archetypal representation of a certain ideal or certain ideals. But you, but you don't quite get the full humanness of them. They're statues, right? Where actually Buddhas look much more like you. That the, the, the living reality looks much more like what's sitting in your seat. Actually even feels like what you feel like to yourself. And as we begin to get comfortable here, in this, with this, as this reality, then this potentiality that is innate in us can actually function appropriately, sensitive to reality, and with all our intelligence, all our creativity, all our heartfulness, all our hereness, isness. Because the, the living Buddha, when you read the story of the Buddha, I mean, he functioned at a very high level. He was the CEO of a big organization. He met with a lot of people, kings, politicians, you know, generals, and, and then all the way, you know, farmers, courtesans, housewives. He got fed up with people every once in a while, as happens, right? You know that about the Buddha, don't you? Maybe I shouldn't break your idealization here. <laughs> but he did. He did. There was this very famous story called the Quarrel at Kasambi, where these two monks start to disagree about something, and then they get in a fight, and then people take sides, and he goes to mediate. And, it, and he's the Buddha, and it doesn't help. Right? Can't, he can't mediate the difference. And so at some point he says, okay, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go off in the forest with the animals. They're much nicer to be with than these people. Right? 
they worked it out later, just, just so you know. But, but it took a while. It's people, right? So the present-centeredness that we've been cultivating, both in the sitting and in the interaction, is needed so that our innate capacities can really function at their highest potential. That one of the things mindfulness, being present, present-centeredness seems to do, it's like uh, watering that plant of, of who and what we are so that it can really flower, can truly flower. And that's where these images are really beautiful because they represent that flowering. And when we're present in a very full way, in an immediate way, unobscured un, uh, by our ideas, by our beliefs, by, by our patterning, by the past, then we can respond quite freshly and alive and in a real way to a real moment. And so, as somebody was saying when she found herself up at the top of the hill this morning, and seeing she wouldn't be back, she had a choice. We have choice when we're present. We can get really upset and tight and run down the hill and crash and then have come in limping, maybe. Or we can, as one of my uh, friends put it, we can be impeccably late impeccably late. It's, and, and I'll tell you the story. I was, um, we, we train uh, community Dharma leaders training that we facilitate here at Spirit Rock. And that's teaching people how to teach day-longs and beginning classes and groups in their communities around the country and really around the world now. And it was the first community Dharma leaders meeting and I was going as a teacher and I wanted to be there and I was working on impeccability and I got here I got to Spirit Rock plenty of time at least 20 minutes early and I get here and but I kind of notice there's not a lot of cars in the parking lot and I go into the lower hall down there and like where is everybody oh the meeting's not here right the meeting's somewhere else So I get in my car and I drive and I'm 20 minutes late to the meeting. And I walk in and and I was really upset, actually kind of judgmental of myself. And I talked to one of my colleagues and she said, oh my dear, you you haven't learned how to be impeccably late yet. (laughs) And she was really pointing at something like you don't have to lose your present-centeredness even when you're late even when things are not right. We don't have to lose ourselves. We don't have to disconnect, as Martin was talking about yesterday. We can still stay present. So an appropriate response is one way to think about the goal of really a lifetime of practice, that we can respond to reality. And reality will keep presenting us with new possibilities of what to respond to, right? 
we kind of have an idea, we kind of like to live in our ideas that, oh, it's going to stay the same. And it doesn't at all. I'm having something here, brand new. Um, it keeps changing. And reality itself has infinite potentiality. So, of course, it's not going to stay the same. So, another way to think about the goal of practice or how practice works or where it goes, also a little bit related to what we've been looking at here. And this is from Dogen, Zen teacher who said, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. Okay. Sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. We have a lot of ideas about enlightenment. We have a lot of beliefs. We have a lot of ways we imagine enlightenment's going to be, or we project enlightenment, or we idealize enlightenment, or we think it's far off, or we can't get there, or we'll never know it, or all kinds of things. Or, or when we get there, then we'll never have a problem again. That's usually the idea, right? If we just get to that enlightened place, we can retire. And there's no more problems after that. It's not true, not even for the Buddha. He had still had a lot of, lot of people he had to deal with. <laughs> Um, but, but it says, Dogen says, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. Buddhas are willing to look at their delusion again and again and again and again and again until there's no more delusion. They're not judging their delusion. They're not sitting there saying, oh, I'm such an idiot and I'll never become a Buddha because I'm deluded or I don't understand or I'm caught or I'm contracted or I'm reactive. No, they want to see that. They want to see, oh yeah, what is this? As Sharda said a number of times, what is this? What's this like? Whereas Martin was asking us yesterday, What is it that gets in the way? You know, what keeps us from being present? What is it we believe is too much or we shouldn't feel or can't feel or we're not allowed to experience? We have some kind of uh, critical idea that this is not okay for a human to feel. And remember, if, if you're a human and you're feeling it, it's in the realm of what humans feel. Everybody got that? That's really, because we really, we really believe there are some things that, no, this is not okay. So, being willing to be enlightened about delusion, to see what's in the way, what how we're uh, identified, how we're caught. Really, how, really, the, and, and, a, and a, 
a more fundamental way to say this is how we suffer. How we suffer. And this is really the basis for the Buddhist path. That the Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. He said, look at suffering, examine suffering, contemplate suffering, contemplate its causes, contemplate what the absence of suffering is like. And then contemplate, live a life that supports that contemplation so you can contemplate it all the way to the end. Joko Beck, Charlotte Joko Beck, wonderful Zen teacher from Southern California, she said, to enjoy the world without judgment is what a realized life is like. To enjoy the world without judgment is what a realized life is like. Anybody notice that they judge their experience here? That's pretty much across the board. One of the great delusions, one of the obstacles one of the hindrances to being able to see clearly, to be able to realize our potential, is what's called in Buddhism the judging mind or the comparing mind. And the judging mind is the mind that is telling us we're not okay or we're bad or there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with feeling what we're feeling or there's something bad about experiencing what we're experiencing, or we're comparing our experience to other people. And mostly we find it that our experience is less than others, like others are having the right experience and we're not having it. Or one time we had the right experience, but we're not having it now. Or in the future we could have the right experience, but it's not happening so far. And then, of course, the comparing mind when in, in a more refined understanding is really uh, three parts. It's the comparison or the judgment that uh, I'm better than somebody else or I'm worse than somebody else or I'm the same as somebody else. This is, in, in Buddhism, this is called conceit, the three conceits. And of course, these conceits posit a kind of identity that is separate. So it doesn't matter whether you're better than or less than or the same as. They're all rooted in a certain misunderstanding of reality based on separateness. And these, the judgmental mind, the comparing mind, is dukkha. Anybody not know the word dukkha here? I want to check. A couple people might not know, but it looks like every... There we go. Okay. Dukkha. It's a great word to know. Commonly translated as suffering, but much broader than any word we have in English, dukkha. So obvious suffering, war, hunger, famine, hatred, racism you know, greed. All of these are dukkha, forms of dukkha. 
earthquakes are dukkha, or floods are dukkha, or killing is dukkha, right? Obvious. But dukkha also includes things that are very simple, very, you know, the fact that reality is unreliable or unsatisfactory in any permanent way or just difficult, even in slight ways. That's all dukkha. So even even um, if you sit here now and I go on and on for two hours of talking and you have to go to the bathroom, that's dukkha also, right? I mean... And these are those are that's a very simple common that's what's called dukkha dukkha, ordinary everyday dukkha, you know the fact that you know you may get up and feel fine and you just want to lie in bed all day and you lie in bed and then after a while you're hungry, you have to eat after a while sooner or later it's dukkha the pain of hunger is a kind of dukkha, so it's not just the big suffering. But it's something that's a little bit woven into life, dukkha. It's part of the nature of life on the human realm, that there is dukkha, there's suffering, there's dis-ease, stress sometimes it's translated as, maybe one of the closest uh, English words that we could use for dukkha. Judging mind, the comparing mind, is dukkha. It, it's a certain kind of suffering and we feel it, not only the pain of it, not only the difficulty of it, the hurt of it, the demeaning quality or the attacking quality or the, the ways we feel diminished in some sense. But also, it limits us and it's limiting of others. It fixes self and other. That's why it's conceit. And this form of practice is a particularly great form for seeing the comparing mind. (laughs) So if we go in a silent retreat, the comparison happens all in silence, right? So if I'm sitting and... This guy next to me is sitting like that, and I think, wow, he's really, God, he really knows how to sit. <laughs> wow, maybe I should put my hands like him, and, you know, because <laughs> you know, he's really sitting still for a long time, and oh, she's, she moves her head. She's not really so good at the meditation. <laughs> you know, and the mind will do that, but at least it's all kind of in silence, you know. You don't real, and then you think, "Well, I really don't know what's happening with him." Oh, he's not that good a meditator, anyways. Even he's just trying to look good. You know, you hear the the, the judgment and the division and the separation and the you know, and either I'm trying to prop myself up or I'm feeling bad or one or the other. That's all part of the dukkha, the suffering, the stress, and the comparing mind and the judging mind. This form is particularly well-suited for the comparing mind, not only because we're sitting together, but we're actually talking about our experience together. And so you're really hearing, oh, he really is having a good meditation. (laughs) He really does know what he's doing, and I'm really not having that at this moment. You know, or he's having some big opening, and I'm feeling contracted. And so it's really easy to start to believe 
the judging mind and think, oh, that's right and this is wrong. That's good. This is bad. Suzuki Roshi said, comparisons are odious. It's really a strong statement. Comparisons are odious. And, and what he's pointing to, or the reason he speaks so strongly, is his absolute respect for each individual, for exactly where each person is. That the idea that we're supposed to be like somebody else or where somebody else is, is, is a very powerful delusion. The complete respect for exactly where you are. That is, the, that is one of the most skillful uh, understandings to lead to awakening. To actually land right where we are, right where we are, and understand that is the path. Remember when I said the whole Dharma sits in our seat? Then it means the whole path to the Dharma sits in our seat. And in, in, implicit in that is that the reality, the causes and conditions that have brought us here are the causes and conditions that will reveal reality. We don't need anything else, actually. We don't need to be different. The great paradox is we need to be ourself. Here's one of the few things I've ever written. (laughs) Buddha became the Buddha by being the Buddha. (laughs) I like that a lot, I have to say. (laughs) I thought that was, I was going to say it's one of the few great things I've ever written. He didn't try to be Krishna, right? He didn't try to be Rama. He didn't try to be Shiva or Shah. He he actually stayed very present with his own heart and mind. That's how he became the Buddha. And that, if we can begin to see that, if we begin to understand that, if we can begin to trust that, we can trust reality as the doorway to awakening. And so we don't need to compare with others in that sense. And we can see that the comparison is part of the doorway. And here's, here's the good news. You don't have to stop comparing. I'm not telling you to do that. That's going to happen. If you have a mind, it's going to compare. (laughs) We can be mindful of the comparison. We don't have to believe it. It can be one of the doorways to awakening. This is from Ajahn Chah. He says, sometimes you may see other monks behaving badly. You may get annoyed. This is suffering unnecessarily. It is not yet our dharma. You may think like this. He is not as strict. 
as I am with the precepts. They are not serious meditators like us. Those monks are not good monks. See, it happens everywhere, right? It is a common mistake for meditators to make, but watching other people won't develop wisdom. If you are annoyed, watch or be present with the annoyance in your own mind. That's what's liberating. And so you don't have to stop being annoyed. You can be annoyed the whole time you're here. And that could be the way to awakening, if that's really the truth of your experience, if that's your dharma. Remember, dharma and truth we could use as the same word. Now, in the this spirit of, of being mindful of our delusion, of studying delusion, and appropriate response, there are a few process pieces I want to just say about how to work in the interactive practices. Um, one is, I want to uh, remind you again that it may be appropriate at some point not to say something that's true because it feels too personal or maybe too vulnerable or you don't, even you just don't feel like saying it. But you can say something's happening, here's the impact, or here's the affect, or here's what I'm feeling about it, or I feel like I don't want to say it, what it is. It feels private. And that's totally fine. If we're in the lived moment, that can happen. That's one of the, that's part of the realm of possibility, of potential. in terms of the skillful use of speech as we're using it, it doesn't, we're not giving permission just to talk about anything. We're, we're using this as a practice. The speech is for practice. It's not a time to tell somebody maybe that you were doing pot washing with this morning. You really didn't like the way they did the pots. And, you know, and the fact they kept handing you the big heavy pots to do. And why did you do that? If you have a problem with somebody, write a note to the managers. Do not communicate directly. This is a basic uh, uh, guideline for silent retreat, but it gets a little trickier here because we're talking. Please do not use the talking as the time to communicate those kind of things. Okay, I hope that's clear. And then the other piece in terms of the comparing mind is there will be, there is a, a wide continuum of experience here. And, and in, in a certain way, it's really beautiful to be together in this way. Some people are brand new to doing inquiry, have never done anything like this or process in this way. Some people here have done, you know, 20 years of doing inquiry. And it's been great in the interviews to hear the appreciation from every level. But don't let this asymmetry that may happen in some of the dyads 
don't let that invoke your judging mind. Or if it does, be aware of how, it, how it's uh, the reaction that's happening. Don't just believe it. One of the uh, beauties of diversity is beginning to see the uniqueness of each being. Of each being. And that appreciation for the uniqueness of each being. All of us. Now I want to say a little more about the judging mind or what's called in psychology or is the superego or the critic is it's also called um, and I, I just want to give you a little picture of both uh, what it looks like and how it functions and, and what it functions to do so it and this is very simplistic psycho psychological picture model often you get a picture, a big circle, it's the ego, right? So you have the ego. Then inside the ego, there'll be a smaller circle, which is the id, or the libidinal energies, the instinctive energies. And part of the ego's job is to manage those instinctual energies of aggression and libidinal energies, survival energies, all that. With this big circle of the ego there'll be a little circle on top that's called the superego, or, or Freud called it the overego. And, um, and the function of the superego is to keep the ego intact, to keep it cohesive, to keep it intact. And the, and the superego is a psychic structure kind of created by the introjects that we got at a very young age from the parents and from the, from the uh, parental figures and the family and the culture and the maybe teachers and authority figures that were part of our world, you know, that said, don't do this, do this, you're good if you're this, you're bad if you're that. And we kind of imbibe all of that. And, and it ends up being part of what uh, helps us function, especially as kids and then slowly as adults. And, and then we have this. We have this. Sometimes it's called conscience or conscience is made partly of that. One of the... And, and the way it functions, right, is to keep the sense of self in place. So if Eugene, I know Eugene is within this bandwidth, right? This is Eugene. He has these kind of feelings and these kind of thoughts and these kind of experiences, and that's Eugene. If Eugene starts to have experiences that go below or above or outside that bandwidth, that's something starts to get uncomfortable because that's not how Eugene, I know myself. And the superego then becomes the support or the authority to say, that's not okay. Like if Eugene starts having a really, you know, sad, very sad, right, about something, it seems like a little thing. And 
the judgment comes in. Oh, why are you so sad about that? That's not a big deal. What's wrong with you? You know, people really have problems. Why are you so sad? Why are you laughing about that? He's, why, he's sad, but, you know, you're laughing. Even though he shouldn't be sad. And, you know, it just, it's critical. It's critical, and it says how reality should be, what, how, how much we should feel, how little we should feel. And it could go, can go the other way. We start feeling really happy. You know, and I think, you know, growing up there was always like, oh, you shouldn't be too happy because somebody in the world is having a really hard time. <laughs> Which is true. Somebody in the world is having a hard time. Well, what does that have to do with me right now? And, but it keeps us in a certain bandwidth. And some of our religious traditions would use this kind of criticism and we imbibe that, right? God says, or it's sinful, or it's bad if you feel too much joy or ecstasy or sensuality or things like that. It's bad, no good. Watch out. And so the voice of the judgment is, can be hard or mean or attacking or demeaning or accusing, or taunting, or teasing, or cajoling, or, or in a more subtle form, just kind of gently nudging, or nudging, or persuading, or kind of uh, pseudo-helpful, or false friendly. Oh, you'd be a little better if you just combed your hair on the other side, then you'd be okay. Or, or you should really just get a better Zafu and then you'll, you'll look better in the hall and, and then you'll be okay. Or, you know, just some little, like we're not okay as we are. You know, we're too short or too tall or too wide or too thin or too this. There's always something. Or there's the shoulds. You should do this. You should do it this way. In Gestalt, they talk about it as shooting on yourself. Don't should on yourself. And, and this archetype of the judgment was very much in the Buddhist teachings. Um, the penultimate moment before the Buddha gets enlightened, um, Mara, who's the archetype of the evil one or the devil or the, uh, or the judging mind, comes and says to the Buddha, what right do you have to get enlightened? Who do you think you are? You don't, you, we don't, you, why are you valuing yourself so much to think you should get enlightened? And so the, the judgment is often devaluing of who we are. And so that was, that's a pretty direct kind of judgment. Mara also came at some points and would say to the Buddha when he was like practicing hard, Mara would say, you poor thing, you're trying so hard. Why don't you go back and make merit and have a nice life? This is like a very friendly version of Mara. You know, oh, don't, don't do that. That's not the right thing. Even though it's where your heart is called. And so we want to begin to make more explicit, both in our sitting meditation and as we do inquiry, when the judge comes. Because the judgment will come, the criticism will come, the should will come, the, oh, this is not okay. A little bit as Martin was saying, to feel. 
only it comes, it doesn't just, it's not just a vacant, uh, I shouldn't feel this, there's actually a judgment or a criticism or a, a meanness to it or an attackingness to it. It's so pervasive that we don't even consider that we might have a life without judgment, as Joko Beck said. Remember, she said, to live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. So let me just be clear here. I don't mean we don't make critical assessment, right? We do. Like we might, might contemplate, well, how is that sitting? Well, I wasn't so concentrated. Maybe I'll make a little more effort the next time, okay? Rather than, oh, I wasn't so concentrated. I'm a horrible meditator. I'll never be any good. I'm a rotten person. And why did I even come? And et cetera, et cetera. Like there is a place to consider and contemplate and make a kind of critical assessment. But we're not talking about a harshness or demeaning or devaluing in any way, shape, or form. We're simply talking about using our intelligence and our objectivity to see what's true. And that's different than the, what we're calling the superego or the judge. And so there is a possibility of actually being present and not being under the sway or the authority of the superego. This is from Hamid Ali, one of my teachers. He said, The superego is the inner coercive agency, the inner coercive agency that stands against the expansion of awareness and inner development, regardless of how mild or reasonable it becomes. It is a substitute and a cruel one for direct perception and knowledge. Inner development one way to talk about awakening. Inner development requires that in time there be, there be no internal coercive agencies. There will be instead inner regulation based on objective perception, understanding, and love. That at some point when our whole being is not being molded or shaped or held to some uh, 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 introject from the past authority figures. Instead, inner regulation and how we function is based on objective perception, understanding, and love. And this is part of our potential as human beings, to be free of judgment. In the Shin Shin Ming, they put it this way. They say, realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That we can actually just... Realization is to be ourselves, to be our perfectly imperfect self. To be here as human beings in a very rich way, in a very full way, in, in, in the unique way that we appear, not in some idealized, future, imagined way. Now, one of the reasons the superego functions, the judgment functions, 
is it believes in an in a unconscious way. We're still about three, four, five, six years old when this psychic structure was being developed. And so it functions as if we need protection in the same way we needed protection then, that we needed guidance. We didn't have our intellectual capacities were not developed. Our, our capacity to understand was not so developed. Our, um, our, our emotional capacities were not so developed. And so it tries to protect us from being hurt or being, you know, something wrong happening that it believes. It tries to protect us from feelings that we might think are intolerable, whether we're conscious or unconscious, certain kinds of pain or suffering or fear or anger or happiness or ecstasy, really. Or, or certain kinds of or qualities of, of uh, uh, feeling that we might find ego dystonic. The word ego, dystonic means it's not syntonic with how we see ourselves. Uh, you know, for example, sometimes, um, and this is gross generalization stereotype, but like... Um, you know, for men, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to be afraid. Like, I grew up in Detroit, and I had two older brothers and two older cousins, and we were the center for a whole gang of boys, really. And you could be angry, but don't be afraid. That is, like, not okay. So when the, so when the fear comes, there's a lot of judgment of fear, right? Because the the judgment is trying to protect us from a feeling that wasn't tolerated in the community and the family at that point. And I've always, I was really struck, I was teaching at a Tibetan center last week and um, talking with some Tibetan monks, actually Bhutanese monks, but uh, I, I, I had my bike and I, I asked the, the monk if he wanted to take a ride. He said, no, no, I'm afraid to ride. He, and we were talking, he said, and there were horses. And he, he said, oh, they wanted me to ride the horses, but I'm afraid to ride the horses. And I'm like, I'm like, I just can't believe he can just say I'm afraid like that. It's like, that's not in my, you know, that's not how I grew up. You don't say, oh, I'm afraid to ride a bike. That's totally. <laughs> that didn't, that, that's not Detroit. You know, let's put it that way. We grew up in different communities. And, and I was once teaching a Tibetan monk, Sokni Rinpoche, Lama, um, how to swim in the swimming pool. And I said, okay, put your head underwater. And he said, okay. And he put his head in the water. And he came up, fear, 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 fear. You know, he was just, he was just like afraid. It was not even a big deal. You know, it's just like a normal thing. You get afraid. It's like, Wow. So anyhow, <laughs> so those kind, and we all have some of that, you know, whether it's stereotypical or not, right? We all have some feelings, as Martin was pointing us at, that are not okay. And so what's needed, what, what allows us to be with the pain? Or what happens 
when we back off the superego and we are with the pain, what's the possibility here? What's the potential? And the potential here is one of the great gems of Buddhist practice. It's said that suffering is the doorway to compassion. That beginning to open to our own hurt or pain or difficulty is the doorway to the heart's compassion. That to begin to look clearly at ourselves and what it is to be human and the suffering that each person here has experienced in their own unique way allows the heart to open naturally. And not only that, if we're willing to look and see the pain of others, the suffering of others, it is also the same portal, the same doorway to compassion. The word compassion, compassion with passion, and I never understood that at first when I first read it. What does that mean, with passion? I always thought of passion in the more kind of, you know, being passionate in some way, passionate bike rider or lusty passion or having a lot of fire for something until I looked up the word compassion. And it meant with passion referring to the passion of Christ or the suffering of Christ on the cross. And it, it really points to the ennobling potential of suffering whether in Christianity or in Buddhism, it's the same understanding that to be with the suffering has the potential to open our heart, to open the kindness that is really our birthright, the care, the tenderness, the consideration, the empathy, when the heart is unencumbered by judgment or harshness or some kind of idea we shouldn't feel something. When the heart is really present, when we're willing to be with suffering, when we don't block it, when we don't deny it, in ourselves or in others. And I know as a therapist, when I was a therapist, it was one of the interesting things, you know, people come in, all kinds of people, and if you can't connect with the person, you, you can't work with them. It's, it just doesn't work therapy. You have to have some basic empathy with the person. And some people's suffering is not so attractive, to be honest. Like we, and, and it'll be different for all of us, but we, we'll have some judgments about their suffering. And certain people like, would be off-putting, especially some people come in, they're very kind of full of themselves. And they want you to see how great they are. And it's really interesting to, to, for me, the key was always to be able, could I see the suffering of the person? Even if it was an off-putting suffering, even if it wasn't the kind of, certain suffering, it's just easy. You know, you see it. Or, I mean, and you can do it, you can see it in a photo. You can see a starving child, like, 
you know, there's, right, there's no question, right? It just touches the heart. But how about, you know, a, 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 an, an in, in crazed murderer? Do we see the suffering that's there? To look clearly and see. It doesn't mean we have to like or condone any action. It means we see that the action, the way somebody is acting sometimes, is because of their suffering. And so this possibility for the heart to open to ourselves and to one another. Longfellow, secret American Buddhist, said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. You know, we only see the enemy when we don't see their suffering. We don't see their fear, their reactiveness, their wanting to survive or believing that their happiness will come out of whatever action they're taking that we don't agree with. And we don't have to look far to see suffering. You know, it also is sitting in our own seat. The question is, can we be open to it? Can we let it touch us? Can we let it have its impact? Can we begin to feel the actual pain and the compassion? It's, it's an odd dialectic here because the compassion actually will help us move even closer to the pain. We'll feel it more directly, more immediately. It'll almost feel like more pain in some way at times. And then the compassion is this soft, tender, caring, warm, heartfelt, uh, really loving, kind attention. Mindfulness is not enough. It's not enough. The Dharma will not flourish simply with mindfulness. It needs kindness. It needs care. It needs heartfulness. We need it. Maybe a better way to say it. Whether it's we or the Dharma, it's the same thing. And if you've ever experienced somebody's compassion to you, not where they're trying to fix you, not where they're trying to make you better or right, but actually they're just there with you when you're in pain or in difficulty. I meant to bring this. I've been reading this amazing book called, shoot, what's it called? You can have some compassion for my mind going, (laughs) my memory. Uh, Let's see. Well, I can't remember the name, but I'll tell you what the book's about. It's about the father, the priest who started Homeboy Industry. Oh, it's called Tattoos on the Heart. Tattoos on the Heart. It's about a a Catholic priest who works with uh, gangs in in L.A., the Latino gangs in L.A. And it's an amazing book and story. And he talks about a number of times about young men that he's been working with or some young women 
then getting shot and killed in the gang violence and his grief. And at some point, somebody, another, another young man gets killed and he has to tell the mother and give the final blessings over the body. And, and he goes back to his office and he's all alone. And this young, other young man, homeboy, comes in and says to him, he, he just gets the priest's pain. That's what happens. Like this young gangbanger, he gets how, hurt, how heartbroken the priest is and he starts to speak to it. And, and it's moving. The two of them just start sobbing together, just sobbing together over the shared pain. And the, and the, you know, it's, it's a beautiful scene in the book. You can read it for yourself. Very moving. That kind of compassion, where somebody just gets our pain, gets a, the fact that we're having even a hard time. It doesn't have to be the worst things. That kind of empathy, that kind of sensitivity, that kind of human heartfulness that's really person to person, that's heart to heart. The compassion. Sometimes we're a little afraid of compassion. We think it's weak or it's Pollyanna in some way. Sharon Salzberg said, compassion is not at all weak. It is the strength that arises out of seeing the true nature of suffering in the world. It allows us to bear witness. Compassion allows us to bear witness, to bear witness to our own suffering and the suffering of others without fear. It allows us to name injustice without hesitation and to act strongly, appropriately when it's needed, with all the skill at our disposal. To develop the state of mind, to develop the mind state of compassion, is to learn to live, as the Buddha put it, with sympathy, with kindness for all living beings without exception. And so it points to the boundless nature that that is the potentiality of the human heart, that it's boundless, that our kindness is actually without exception. So let's do some inquiry. Um, okay. Sharda uh, says break time. I think that's right. Let's take a break and then silent break. Stay close to yourself. And come back and we'll, we'll, I'll give you the practice 